Welcome to the University of California, San Francisco Sports Medicine Podcast, featuring Dr. Nira Fundia, Dr. Brian Feely, and Dr. Drew Lansdowne, discussing hot topics in sports medicine and society. We hope you enjoy our podcast and look forward to hearing from you. All right, welcome everyone to our UCSF Sports Medicine Podcast, six to eight weeks with myself, Dr. Nira Fundia, Dr. Drew Lansdowne, who couldn't be here with us today, and Dr. Brian Feely. Uh, today, we have the pleasure of having Kurt Streeter on, columnist for the New York Times, who's been a, a phenomenal person to listen to over this pandemic, particularly with issues related to social justice, disparities in sports, as we've seen them unfold over this past year. So once again, thank you for joining us, Kurt. We appreciate you taking the time. Now, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. No problem. So just, just for our audience, you know, I always think it's interesting to hear how people got to where they are. And, and you know, we, we have a very kind of direct path in medicine. We, we go through all these various steps. But if you could let our audience a little bit know about how you came to kind of write at the Times and kind of how kind of your career path to, to get to this position. Oh, wow. You know, I kind of have a little bit uh, sort of sort of a circuitous path, a little bit different than maybe a lot of my colleagues in that I really bounced around after after college. First of all, in, you know, in college, I played um, tennis, Division One tennis at, at Cal, Berkeley. And, you know, we were a pretty good team. In my senior year in college, we were number one in the nation for part of the year, at least. And, um, you know, so that was a very kind of serious undertaking for me in college. And then I played a little bit in low-level pros after that. And then I, I immediately just, I was really drawn to journalism. I was always somebody that had, um, you know, just really into the news, really, more, more even than, you know, more kind of hard news even than, or quote-unquote hard news than, than sports. So I pivoted to um, journalism as soon as I could. Um, and I worked in San Francisco, your area, first, first in, uh, you know, one of my first big jobs was working at KGO Radio. So I worked in radio for a while, then I worked in documentary. Uh, I did, you know, I worked on a documentary about foster children, children where I, I followed a family of foster children around for about a, about uh, one year. Um, that was on PBS. Um, and eventually, I was 30 years old when I transitioned into working in print journalism and eventually landed at the Los Angeles Times. I was at the LA Times for about 15 years. Most of that time was not in sports. Most of that time was writing about the city of Los Angeles and the state of California, primarily for the front page uh, and also for the California section at that paper. I, I was in sports for a short while. But then, um, you know, along the way, I wrote some sports stories that got some, you know, some good attention um, uh, just from, from, my, from my, my perch in the Metro desk primarily at the LA Times. I ended up then at ESPN, the magazine, and then the New York Times came calling um, about three years ago. And uh, I couldn't, uh, couldn't walk away from what's really a dream job at the Daily Times in the sports section. And we, have a, we have a sports section that I think is a little bit unique in, or quite a bit unique, I think, in, in American um, journalism and sort of the stances that we take and the, the way that we, we go about things. And it certainly um, jibed with, with, with my sensibilities. So... Uh, I landed at the perfect spot and for me, and about four months ago, I transitioned then again from being a feature writer for the Times sports section to being the Sports of the Times columnist. So now I'm a columnist writing about all sorts of topics, pretty much whatever I want to in, in, in the world of sports. So we're very, very, very lucky and a, and a lot of hard work. Kind of... Uh 
you know, pivoting a little bit over to the, you know, the NCAA playing sports in the pandemic, and obviously that's, uh, you know, colored a lot by race and socioeconomic status and kind of how the NCAA and its institutions kind of perceive players. What are your thoughts in potentially reporting on this and, you know, uh, the NCAA's take on this? And then when you potentially may talk to individual players and families about continuing to play during the pandemic with their health and safety, seemingly not of concern. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a, that's a tough one. I mean, I think that definitely there are, there are um, athletes that are, that have been, been families that have been very, very concerned about this. I and mean, clearly, I mean, you had a, you know, small, small percentage that decided simply not to play um, this year. Um, but, you know, uh, yeah, first of all, I think among the athletes, a lot of them are, right, they're, they're young, they feel invincible, they feel like this is, they, it's hard for them to understand the way the virus works. I don't know that the NC2A and the medical, I, I don't know that they're really, how well it's explained how, just how the virus really works, that you can be fine and you can have it, and then just how that, how you can contribute to the overall spread, and just sort of that whole, the public health aspect of it. Uh, I don't know that that's really, it sort of seems to be lost on the fans or they don't want to see it. They know it maybe, and they just don't want to admit that there can be this broader problem, even if the athletes don't die. I mean, right. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, because uh, I'll, I'll get a lot of responses like that from people. And I've, I've taken some pretty strong stances about playing during this time and you know, among those responses are I always hearing from people, well, nobody died. None of the athletes died. So everything's fine. Well, you know, obviously from a public health standpoint, that doesn't really add up. And so I don't know, you know, there's just a combination of factors. And so I think a lot of people are just trying to play. They're just trying to play through it. Nobody wants to be inconvenienced. And you also have in, in our, in our culture, you know, we have this caste system set up and you know maybe that's because i'm reading the book cast right now it's been on on my mind quite a bit but this racial caste system where opportunities are limited um for black and brown people in our in our culture particularly african-american people and you know sports is one of the pathways one of the few pathways or seen as one of the viable pathways to success so people are so that makes that makes uh folks more willing to risk to take take risks you know um if, if this is one of the few ways that i can help my family or help myself be successful and i think i'm going to be a pro and everybody in college thinks that they're going to be a pro um well then shoot i'm gonna i'm not gonna take a year off <laughs> you know i'm not gonna i'm not i can't make that sacrifice i'd rather sacrifice my health and i think that um and by the way i'm not i'm gonna be fine anyways um that's sort of the thinking um to, to a large extent. I'm not hearing enough, um, I guess that's the bottom line. I don't really hear enough uh, voices of criticism or worry, um, just outward worry uh, from, from the athletes and families, not, not as much as I would expect. Um, maybe that's because maybe I just need to do more deeper, deeper reporting on that. But I, it's not the only thing I write about, so I don't dive into it you know, entirely. I'm sure I could find more, more voices, but I've been surprised at the lack of, uh, at the lack of uh, critical thinking on, on this issue. Yeah. It seems really complicated because I think 
like you said, sports is the, you know, an avenue out for a lot of disenfranchised families. Um, but then we're putting them at in harm's way, essentially for the benefit of universities and in a for-profit situation. But then you have a lot of other sports uh, in the NCAA that have essentially been canceled because they're not on TV. Um, I, this probably puts you a little bit too much on the spot, but do you think we should have continued with the NCAA football season and basketball season, or do you think we should have just taken a break? I don't, I don't, I don't think that we should have, I think we should have taken a break. Um, and I wrote about this, re, you know, recently kind of cheekily, I, uh, I announced there, or, you know, I, I said that the Yukon should be the national, the, the, the national champion in football because they were the first team in division one to, to announce that they weren't going to play this season. Um, and only three out of the, what, I think 130 of the, in the top tier teams, um, only three decided not to play. And that's UConn, uh, New Mexico state, uh, and, um, old dominion. So all low, lower level, you know, or all, all teams that aren't, you know, aren't exactly great or house, you know, household names in foot, football, but still they made the, they, they didn't play. And I, Personally, I think that's the way to go. I mean, maybe I'm just, and I can say that as a columnist now, <laughs> but I, uh, I just, I, I look at it as I look at this as far beyond sports. I mean, uh, obviously we're close, we're, we're bearing down on 400,000 people dead, you know, because of this disease and, and how many, you know, countless other people hospitalized and with serious medical condi conditions, all things you guys know as doctors, of course, but, um, just the, the overall health ramifications, the things we don't know about the long-term effects, the, these issues with uh, you know, inflammation in the heart and other organs, cognitive issues. <laughs> to me, it's just not worth it, especially if you're talking about, you know, 18, many of them, 18, 19 year olds, um, uh, you know, can't even drink legally. And, uh, and we're putting them out there. They're not being paid. They don't have labor protections. They don't have unions. They don't have anybody to stand up for, you know, for, for their side, for health and safety. I just think the ethics of that, I, I am not a fan of. Um, and I just think it's just so American that we can't wait. We can't have any, we don't have patience to, to wait, you know, where the vaccine is, is, is here, slow rollout. But I mean, can't we wait until, you know, next fall? I, but, you know, I, you know, you have to understand the, the economics of it are, are clearly paramount. And I just, I just look at the ethics of it rather than the, the um, rather than the economics. I think another so. area occurred as well too, where we're seeing a lot of, you know, disparities kind of at the lower levels at the youth sports level. And, and we talked about avenues for, you know, uh, certain communities to have to play sports, but at least in my eyes, and I think Brian would agree with me, we're seeing, it's harder and harder for communities of color to actually have access to sports and whether that be lack of physical education in public schools or just the ability to play for clubs to play club sports um kind of what's your take on this and why do you why do you think people just don't talk about it because we we talk about injuries and youth sports and all that stuff but people don't understand that the communities of color are getting you know lack of access to to just being active well i mean the people who don't talk about it are middle class and, and above pe people you know who who are who have all the advantages and and you know can't see what's happening you know in in you know our very stratified country can't see really what's happening in other communities in communities that are disenfranchised and 
um, you know, which abound, which are all over the pl- all over the place. But they're they're talking about it. They know it. They understand it. Um, you know, I did. I, I wrote a wrote a column uh, a couple months ago now about you know where I where I interviewed the basketball coach at Jordan High in in Watts, and Watts is an area that I you know know, know fairly well from my reporting at the LA Times and. You know, I um, mean, he told me the sorts of things that I've heard from a lot of people in similar communities that, you know, they, they can see the, these the kids from the suburbs and from, in, in his case, you know, they were, I think he was talking about Orange County and the Inland Empire, Riverside County and in L.A. or off, you know, sort of defying health, health rules, playing in select events, going on still travel teams. They have the money to do that. Their, their communities aren't or at least at that time had not been as impacted as communities of, of color and poor communities. So they just felt like, well, we're just going to continue on and they have better health care to begin with. So they have probably better outcomes if they get the, if they get the illness, they're maybe less at risk. I'm not sure. Obviously I'm not a doctor, so it's just my sense. Um, uh, so, you know, they just don't have the, they don't have the money. They don't have the access. They are, uh, he, one thing that was interesting that he told me was that in their community, and, the, and this, this community includes some of the biggest housing projects west of the Mississippi, uh, you know, people are so, um, there's a lot of undocumented people, uh, undocumented, you know, you know, immigrants who are, were, were very worried just about having their kids out, period, during that, during that time. Um, where they weren't sure what was what could happen to them if they're if they go out on on a soccer field and are playing in, um, in our current environment um, and they don't have access to insurance they're going paycheck to paycheck so I mean the idea of then you know a kid going out and twisting his ankle and ending up in the hospital is just not a lot, a lot of people were just absolutely just saying to their kids just you know you just got to stay indoors. So, you know, and then the flip side is say we're in a community like where I live, I live, actually live, I don't live in New York, I live in Seattle and I live in a middle class to above um, uh, neighborhood that's an almost, you know, predominantly white neighborhood in a very white city. And um, a lot of my neighbors or people that I, families that I know with kids, they're doing, have, have their kids playing soccer and on select teams and almost, almost as if nothing has ever changed. Um, almost unaffected by, by the pandemic. They have the money to, to work around it. They don't, they're not as impacted by it. So they feel like they're, they're just a, kind of sort of an, a, on an island. I feel that's their, at least that's the, how I look at it. Uh, and, um, or that's how I look at, at, how, at how they're seeing it. You know, they're not, they're not affected. They don't see why they should stop, you know, and, you know, maybe with some limits, but, uh, you know, that's not how I ha- I run it in in our in our household where I have a ten year old son and you know what we've stayed we we have not done any of that stuff during the pandemic we just and I first of all my son's not not really into team sports or that sort of thing anyways um, but even if he was I would have serious questions about him going out and playing soccer right now even if it was supposedly distanced and. I just, because of our, we look at it in our family, like, you know, we're responsible for our whole community, you know, and I don't want to, we don't want to contribute to the spread. And so we can be patient and wait. And that's, I don't see a whole lot of that in communities that have, 
privilege? Yeah, it's it's really tough because I think we want our kids to go outside and play, but I think the nothing in at least in my experience and probably all of our experiences has shown the importance of believing that you are part of a larger community and your individual actions truly do affect the larger community. And I think unfortunately now all of us have examples of people who were doing 90% well, and then that other 10% has unfortunately resulted in sicknesses and in some cases, um, even death, which is astonishing considering a year ago, we never even knew this really existed or we thought this as something that may be existing someplace else, I guess now that we're in January. Um, how do you, if in a perfect world in the next five years, how would you, potentially create more equity in youth sports so that it was a level playing field for everyone in terms of um, club sports, public schools, reintroduction of kids actually wanting to play for their school teams. What would you change if you had the ability? Uh, wow. You know, I mean, I think, per, I think part of it would be, and I, part of it would be a cultural shift in how we, how we look at youth sports. Um, and I say that as at the same time as I also feel like that's just not going to happen. <laughs> but I mean, I would like to see uh, a, a view of it where it's just a lot less pressurized and a lot more about fun and a lot more about health and and a lot more about kind of community and and instead of like the, this rat race hyper competitive um, system that we're in now. In other words, I'd like to see it be more like more look more like what I know of the system in Scandinavia or Sweden, Norway, um, where they seem to have that sort of the, that that ethos um, or Denmark places like a lot of a lot of a lot of much of Europe, um, just not the sort of uh, competitiveness on steroids that that were oh, I shouldn't use steroids I guess in that <laughs> the, the the just the hyper competitiveness that 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 we're we're trapped in right now it's, it's just it's just sort of you know the the drive to have our kids on select soccer teams when they're eight years old because of the feeling that if you're if you don't have your kid on a select soccer team by the time they're eight or nine then they're not gonna like play pro soccer or get a college scholarship to play soccer and then the tens of thousands of dollars that parents feel that they have to have to pay I mean before you're even age 10 these kids and then you have a yeah, so I'd like to see that shift. I just don't know how that was. I honestly don't know how that is possible. I just, uh, other than, I mean, it's just almost a failure of imagination on, on our parts in our in our country. And, um, we're just sort of lost in this spiral, um, unable to get out of it. And uh, I mean, God, I, I didn't, for me, I didn't, I, I, I played many sports until I was about 11, 12. And I definitely was not super competitive until I was 12, 13 years old. And I, and I feel like I was probably, uh, I, I quit other sports when I was 12, 12 or so. I wish that I had kept playing soccer and I wish I had kept playing basketball. Um, and I wish I had not taken the tennis maybe so seriously. But again, that was 23 years ago. Yeah. What made you decide tennis? Arthur Ashe. Well, two things. Yeah, Arthur Ashe. Uh, uh, you know, I'm 54. So in 1975, I was nine years old when he won Wimbledon and, and I watched that match and, um, I just thought that he was just the coolest, you know, just came out of, came out on center court with that Afro and, and 
he had this USA jacket on and he was just so cool. And he dismantled Jimmy Connors, who was just like his polar opposite in, in every way, including racially. And yeah, you know, I just, I, I just, you know, I just fell for the game really at that, at that point and decided that I wanted to try to see if I could get good. And I had the advantage of, for me, my, my dad played college basketball at, at Oregon. He was one of the first black players to play at Oregon in the fifties. And uh, then he taught himself how to play tennis and he actually became just this tennis junkie who just loved the sport. So I had always been around tennis because of my dad and playing at the public courts in Seattle where, where I grew up. And so I had that, I had a father who was really into it and we had rackets around and that's just sort of how it happened. Um, but so anyway, so, so if, to get back to the other, other question, if you have, if, if you want to ask other questions about tennis, that, that's, that's awesome. I love talking about that, but you know, you know, so aside from this like larger cultural shift that I wish that we would undertake kind of a rethinking a reimagination of, of, just what it means for kids to play sports and with an emphasis on fun instead of like cutthroat competition at a young age. Get to that cutthroat competition when you're 13, 14, not when you're eight, seven, you know. Um, I, I think too that there's more of a role for, I would think that there's more of a role for, gov for, for, for government and, and to some degree. And um, I don't know exactly what that would look like, but it's maybe setting better standards, even funding, funding system, funding better, you know, systems and or organizations, programs, and, you know, all throughout uh, our communities, because you go out in the suburbs, and my God, they've got these, you know, incredible facilities, and, you know, they've got the coaching, and they've got the Olympic-sized swimming pools, and they've got, so I'd like to see a little bit more, a little bit more, you know, equity in terms of, uh, in terms of funding, and, um, so it's just, boy, that's a, that's just a, that's a big target. It's a big target to move. And I just wish that our kids would have more. I just wish we could have more fun with, with sports. And everybody thinks that their kid's going to be like the, the, the next great champion. And it's just not going to happen first of all. And, and very few are even going to play college sports. And even, you know, I played college sports at a high level. I devoted so much time to it there's a lot of times when I wish that I w had not played sports in college. I missed out on so much. Um, you know, I never took a class past with like 1 PM for my entire time in college. I never every class. I so, you, know, you know how many great classes I missed out. I couldn't take or organizations that I could have been part of, or it's not the be all end all to play college sports. <laughs> you know, it, you know, um, so uh, you know, it's just, a, it's a, it's a mixed thing. And, and last thing too, you know, my, my kid doesn't really, he's not really super into sports other than like running. He likes to run. He likes to play tennis with me, but he's 10 years old. I'm totally fine with him not being part of that rat race. And I'm totally fine not jumping on it and spending $20,000 a year on him training when he's 10 years old. <laughs> so there are these new Nikes that are just absolutely perfect for 11 year olds to run sub five minute miles so you can <laughs> pre-order them right now <laughs> so kurt we always we always like to to end on a, on a fun question so for you being up in seattle it's kind of a two-part question number one favorite seattle sports moment and number two do you think that they'll bring back an nba team to seattle in the next couple of years 
That's so funny that you'd say that because I've been thinking about writing about uh, writing about the Sonics uh, return because uh, it would be the Sonics, of course, the name. Uh, I've been thinking about writing that maybe even as early as, as, as next week. Um, I do think that they're going to, I do think that the, they will return. The NBA will return to Seattle and, and, you know, we're getting indications from the commissioner's office and Adam Silver that, you know, that's clearly on their, on, you know, on their radar. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily going to happen in the next year or two, but I, I think it, I, I would bet that it's coming. Um, and God, you know, that would be great. I'm a huge NBA fan. I, 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 if you're talking about a Seattle sports moment, yeah, would, Seattle favorite would, would Seattle not, sports. Yeah, it, it doesn't have anything to do with Marshawn Lynch or the <laughs> current Seahawks or, or the you know the Super Bowl winning team uh, or even Gary Payton or, or Sean Sean Kemp. I'm old enough to remember um, the, uh, the 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 first big championship, and that was the the, the downtown Freddie Brown, Jack Sigma. Dennis Johnson, you know, late 70s, uh, 1978, 79 uh, world championship soccer, you know, NBA team. Um, and back actually should have won, should have won, should have won the, uh, the title two, two years in a row. They played the Washington Bulls two years in a row and they were, they were up in the first, uh, the first year of three games to two and ended up losing it. But then they came back and won the championship the next year. As a kid, I was lucky enough to go to some of those games and I spent, uh, countless, countless games with my dad, um, watching those Sonics teams, Lenny Wilkins. And to me, that's uh, to me, that's peak, peak Seattle sports, but most people don't even remember it. <laughs> and they think the Sonics started with Sean Kemp and, and Gary Payton, which were great, great years, but uh, they didn't win the title. <laughs> it's still, so, it's yeah. still very weird for us. I mean, I know Durant's not here anymore to see Durant in a Sonics uniform, you know, his first year. Right. But just people are like, wait, there was a team in Seattle. My son was like, he's 10 to wait, there was a basketball team in Seattle and Durant played for them. It's just, you know, it's just wild concept for a lot of, a lot of I know, I know. I, I guess I'm, yeah, right. I'm, de I'm definitely dating myself by talking about that team or, um, but uh, you know, the neat thing about, you know, that, that, that team and that franchise is just, you know, uh, they were just so well supported by this city. I mean, it was always one of the, just uh, you, you, the, you know, they just had, just con just continuous great fan fan support and it's just so sad to see these you know then then teams move the way they do all the all the loyalty where's the loyalty you know uh it's hard and when Sacramento several years ago was 2012 was thinking about um you know there was a chance that there the Sacramento the Kings were going to move to Seattle uh, I actually was not for that because I don't want to take somebody else's team and um you know I know what that's like that's not that's not fair. <laughs> you know, if they're going to get a team, it, it should be an expansion team. Exactly. Well, thanks again, Kurt, for joining us. This this is great. It was a, obviously a wide range of topics, but uh, yeah. thank you so much. And once again, love love reading your writing. It's uh, it's great. And I you know give it to my kids when they're you know take a look at this, read this. This is how you're supposed to write, not you know when uh, they're all. So we, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for everything you do. Great. Appreciate you guys. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the University of California, San Francisco Sports Medicine Podcast featuring Dr. Nira Fundia, Dr. Brian Feely, and Dr. Drew Lansdowne. We look forward to hearing your feedback and hope you look forward to our next episode. Thank you.